So, Andrea, I'm seeing you from two meters away. It's so good. It's been a while. We're on Kildare Street, uh, and the reason that we're here is why? We are going in to have a chat with Mary Lou of the McDonald's. And this is something that had been in the works for a while, but obviously events took over. Um, we had planned to do a big interview with Mary Lou, the leader of Sinn Féin, after the election, after our podcast got everything right, essentially. <laughs> and um, then the global pandemic took over. We still plan to do it, but then, uh, of course, uh, Mary Lou MacDonald um, contracted COVID-19. She was very ill. Um, and since then, she's kind of been doing various interviews, but we kind of, we just decided to do something different. We wanted to hold off as well so we could do it in real life. So uh, the type of interview we wanted to do was to get under the skin of Mary Lou a little bit more rather than just what do you think of government formation at the moment? Like we all know what she thinks, we all know what's going on. Um, so we wanted to do a bit more about Mary Lou, where she's come from, where she's going and what she gets up to. It's really hard to get access to politicians for for leaders, you know, of who are of that kind of high profile of Mary Lou McDonald for this kind of interview. Um, for, you know, over an hour long kind of sit down um, for a more personal interview, which we are hoping is what we're going to do. And we're doing that for you guys, really. We're doing it for our listeners because we know that you value that we do different coverage, that we're not... Um, asking the same old things and um, yeah so should we go in? Let's do it So 32 questions for Mary Lou MacDonald, a magic number I think you'll agree. (laughs) Absolutely, I like that number, it's much better than 26 or 6 which combined make 32 Let's go United Ireland. (laughs) What do you consider your greatest achievement? Um, I suppose becoming the leader of the party, if I'm to talk about my political life. um, But in my personal life, I think my my children. I know that sounds cliched. It's true, though. It may be a cliche, but it's true. Cliches come from somewhere. Yeah. If you could change one thing about yourself, what would it be? Hmm. Only one, I only get to change one thing. I mean, I, there are multiple things. Um, I think I would force myself to slow down a bit. Um, and by that, I mean, I, I live a, a life that's very, of necessity, very, very busy. Um, and I'm not, I mean, I'm not a reckless person, but I'm, I'm quite a decisive person. Um, but I think as I as I live and I get a bit older, I realise the the absolute value of taking a deep breath and stepping back and just slowing the pace down. That you're not missing anything or you're not you're not failing in your mission simply because you're not busy, 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 twenty four hours a day, seven days a week. And I know certainly if you were to ask the people who know and love me best in the world I think that's what they'd say as well like slow it down just you know so I think that would be a good thing and actually not alone is it the one thing that I would like to change I think it is the one thing that I will change and not least helped by our current circumstances where you're we've all been forced to reflect which I think is good which current Irish politician do you most admire Mm. okay um 
I very much admire the New Zealand Prime Minister. Um, I think she's decisive. I like Nicola Sturgeon as well, Scottish woman. I like a lot of those international uh, leaders. I like our, our current president, Michael D. Does he count as a politician? I think so. I think he does. He's in, he's in public and political life. Um, and then across each of the parties, you know, you'd pick out individuals and independents who are really good. I mean, Catherine Connolly today, a Galway independent TD, was on her feet raising issues around special schools. She did it incredibly well. I mean, it was really good politics, really good questioning. So there's lots of individuals that I admire. Or I admire moments in their their politics and in their performance. So our next question was, which current international politician you most admire? You mentioned a couple there. What is it about the New Zealand Premier that speaks to you? I just think she's very real. I think she's really practical. I mean, she did the kind of things that I think a good leader should do. So, for example, she's led from the front in terms of taking a pay cut. Some people might say, well, sure, that's only that's only symbolism or that's only, you know, a minor thing because it's not going to change the, the big budgetary mathematics. But I think it matters. I think it matters that people demonstrate that they will lead from the front and that when you're asking sacrifices of others or where other people have lost their shirt, that you're actually prepared to make some even small sacrifice yourself. I like that. I think she's also been very down to earth and determined and non-melodramatic in her handling of the the virus and and the the COVID-19 crisis in New Zealand. I think she's had stunning results. So she's practical, low-key, down to earth. I think she's an exemplar, actually, to, to my eye, um, just in terms of how she has paced her interventions and how she's articulated them, not just to New Zealand, but to the world. What is your current state of mind? Um, it is a mixture between um, great hope and optimism and deep, deep frustration. I mean, I'm no different. I think all of us are in the same boat. You know, you can't go beyond five kilometers of your home. Your world has been turned upside down. My kids haven't been at school since the beginning of March. Um, so you're living with all of that. Politics has gone to sleep. The economy has gone to sleep. All of these were necessary measures of last resort. Um, so I'm finding that frustrating. But the optimistic part of me feels we just have so much to do now. And all of the things that I had been thinking about and we had talked about, certainly in political life and during the election, now loom even larger. They're even more immediate and more more pressing. So I think our country is going to change dramatically in over the next while. I think it's going to be driven not just by people in here, but more importantly, by people outside of the political bubble. And I'm really energised by that. So I, I have that feeling. And yet you have the feeling that you're being held, held back kind of on a leash of necessity all, all day. Just going to check one thing here. No, that's all good. Great. Okay. Um, when and where were you happiest? Um, hmm. I'm generally happy. I mean, I'm happy when I'm at home. I'm also happy when I'm not at home. <laughs> I mean, 
I'm happy with my <laughs> friends. I'm happy with my family. I'm happy if I'm out on the dare. I'm happy if I decide not to be, which now is more often than not. Um, I'm, I, I like very simple things. Like I'm happy if I'm sitting near an open fire in an uncontrolled environment. I'm not out now at bonfires. <laughs> I just want to assure your listeners, Important nothing untoward happening. But I just, I like, I like just simple things. I like great company. I like a good laugh, you know, so um, so I'm happy in all of those moments. And I, I'm just very fortunate that I have lots of those moments. On what occasions do you lie? Well, I'll be honest with you, right? Which is the worst way to begin to <laughs> answer about lying. Um, I have to confess sometimes, you know, when you're asked uh, questions by eminent journalists and commentators <laughs> and they say, so um, what music were you listening to? And, and you kind of go, oh, my God, just reach for anything. Is that a lie? It's kind of a white lie. It is. Ish. <laughs> Anytime you don't tell the truth is a lie. I try to be truthful. Um, I, I think there's a distinction between telling like a real immortaler, you know, a real big lie or kind of just rearranging the truth so that it's more either understandable or so that it lands correctly to to bring something along or not to cause mayhem or devastation so you have to be diplomatic dealing with people and you have to you have to be truthful but it's important how you're truthful but of course I tell white lies I mean I don't think any functioning human person (laughs) could get through their life without you know at times editing or you know maneuvering Mm. things around but I don't tell big ones um, what is your greatest regret? Uh, not finishing out my studies properly. I was doing a PhD in DCU. I was one of these. I did my primary degree, did postgrad, did more to the point, you know, where people say, are you ever going to stop? Um, and I was, I was writing a PhD and I didn't finish it. And I think that will always nag at me. Not that it's, it's not the end of the world. It's not, um... It's not the biggest deal, but for me, it's one of those unfinished, incomplete. I had committed to it and I didn't finish it. What was your dissertation going to be? It was in um, industrial relations um, and kind of the the transition from that to what was then, you know, human resource systems and the differences in terms of power paradigms and practice between those two. I know it looks, it sounds boring. It was really, really exciting and very interesting. I just never finished. And I remember somebody saying to me when I was a student at at that level saying, there's there's only two kinds of PhDs, ones that are finished and ones that are not. You know, when you'd be agonizing, not able to write and all of this, just write the thing. So, uh, so I didn't finish that. That's a regret. In my personal life and my relationships, I have a million, we'd be here for about a year with me reciting my woes to you (laughs) what trait do you dislike most in others I don't like snobbery in fact I hate it and condescension I just I just I cannot abide the notion of one person sneering at another either because of who they are or what they have or what they don't have um, I, I just have every part of me screams uh, against that. It's, and I think it's the, possibly the most ugly trait in a, in a person because we're all flawed, like, you know, and we all 
misstep or but that sense a sense of snobbery or superiority against another person or other people no why did you join Fianna Fáil? My family were the, on the anti-treaty side of the argument, civil war politics. Um, I suppose it's what I knew kind of around me. Um, and I had friends, some of them very, very good friends within that organisation. So I suppose it happened that way. And it became very clear when I was there that I was in the wrong place. Notwithstanding the fact that, I mean, for generations my family would have been that way inclined but it was all based on just the way that Irish politics fell so I, I come from one of those those families What did you think of Fintan O'Toole's recent profile piece? On me? I thought do you know I, I always enjoy Fintan's writing I think he's tremendously clever and provocative and interesting and nice you know but um, it struck me that it was a piece written about me without talking to me which I think is a weird way to write about somebody. I mean, I know he would, you know, I'm, I'm at this job a while and people would, would have a certain level of knowledge, but to kind of say, who are you? Or we will uncover the deep, you know, dynamics of this personality without actually sitting down and getting, like, Finton's never interviewed me. I, I would know him kind of in passing and to pass pleasantries yeah. with, and I always read his, his articles and I enjoy them, and his books, and I enjoy them tremendously. But he, he wouldn't be in a position really to make any revealing commentary on me, not least because we've never had a substantive conversation for him to base anything on. So. I think you can, though, like, you know, I write a lot about politicians that, OK, fair enough, I probably have interviewed or spoken to most of them. But I think you can make, you know, uh, the, you know the, the profile piece that doesn't actually root itself in an interview is a valid enough form, I suppose. Every every form is a valid form, and I'm not I'm not disputing that for a second. But when it's it's not a profile piece to say this is who, who this person is, this is what they said on the record, this is how you know chronologically their political life unfolded. But to say that you are going to kind of really understand the person without speaking to them, to me, just on a practical level, is just a contradiction in terms. I mean, I was very delighted that Fintan O'Toole wrote about me. Don't get me wrong. He's <laughs> something of an arrival when he, when he does that. But um, I think if, if you really want to write a pro if I was writing a profile piece on Fintan, I would want to sit down with him. I want to look into the white of his eye and just get the measure of him and, and actually ask him things and see how he, how he would respond to them. But that's me. I'm not the journalist. Um, do you think there is a media bias against Sinn Féin? Yes. Okay. <laughs> what would... What? But it's not... But to be fair, it's not universal. These things never are. And that is not to say either that every criticism made against Sinn Féin or a person is wrong or unfair. That's rubbish, you know. But there is a section of the media who culturally for lots of reasons, either don't understand Sinn Féin, don't want to understand Sinn Féin, or are very, very attached to the status quo and very committed to what they see as the legitimate kind of order of things in this state and the order of things in the, in the North. Um, independent news and media being the most 
dramatic exemplar of that. And I mean, they have a tradition of like not liking republicanism for a century. It's their editorial line. It's ingrained in how they think and how they analyze things. Um, that might change. In fact, I have a wee sense that some of that is changing, but that's very, very deeply ingrained. So, yeah, some of it is is biased. Um, some of it, we would say, is unfair, ill-informed. Other parts of it, it just it is what it is. And, you know, you, this is public life and people mm. have different views and you get on with it. You know? Do you think that that comes down to a class thing? I mean, obviously, there's um, or the or a class perception like obviously there's um loads of biases in media and against loads of different um you know parties or individuals Groups, or whatever yeah um it you know i think that sometimes the media as as a as a journalist myself doesn't do itself many favors when it's presenting itself as you know a bastion of impartiality which is not necessarily true and then the some of the coverage happens like did during the general election and a lot of journalists are kind of hold their heads in their own hands as well with that kind of stuff Mm. um do you think that it is more pronounced than let's say the criticism that the Labour Party gets or even Fine Gael or Fianna Fáil yes absolutely and I, I think there is a class element in it I think there's um you know those that would support us are are you know, without a moment's even reflection are often referred to as well. They're just a protest vote. Um, They're ignorant. They're working class. Perish the thought. They don't know. They're young. This is now a new and they're young and they haven't got a clue. So a lot of kind of the political support for for us or for what for what we represent rather than for us as individuals is is remarkably chalked down to ignorance. Um, you don't find that with the other political parties. I mean, the Labour Party would be considered to be more middle class and more palatable. And we're just not, we're outsiders. Um, and I'm not saying that in a poor us way. No, I, I mean, strong us, confident us. We're in now, like, you know, we, we've made a very critical breakthrough and we need to, to build on it. So I'm not saying any of this in a moaning, self-pitying way. But any any analysis of how we're written up and how we're covered by comparison with others, I think would find those things. And by the way, and I've noticed this since I've been the leader, the way I have been written up, but also other women le- uh, leaders are written about is markedly different to how our male counterparts are written about. And a lot, some of that is it's conscious bias. A lot of it is actually deeper than that. I used to think it was just bias. But it's actually something much more profound than that. It's it's something so ingrained that even people who are who are articulating that kind of position have no consciousness and would be horrified if you suggested that they had any bias. They actually think they're being objective. What would be your preference? A Sinn Fein opposition, a Sinn Fein led left wing government, or another election? A Sinn Fein led left government without a doubt. I mean People who voted for us voted to be in government. That's I know. I was all around the country. Mm-hmm. I got repetitive strain from hugging people, and which I won't be able to do now. <laughs> Talking to people, and more importantly, listening to people. And the people were ahead of us. That's actually the truth. Um, I wouldn't have guessed just the extent and the depth of the appetite for change until we got out on the road. And it was across all communities. 
it was across all age groups, though more pronounced with younger voters, but you were finding it everywhere. And the message was this, we want change. This now needs to change. So what and, happens and now? to lead it. Well, what happens now is uh, we're certainly not giving up the ghost on anything, even in the short term. I mean, obviously Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, predictably, um, have clubbed together to try and keep us out. I mean, that's their intention. They, yeah. they brag about that. Um, the Green Party are now talking to them. They may cobble something together. They might not. There's a whole series of steps that needs to go through. We still keep in touch with people. I can't stop Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael and the Greens doing whatever they're going to do, but we are prepared and we're ready, you know, to move with the circumstances. And in any event, even if they frustrate and slow things down now, I firmly believe that they're not going to stop the change that's imminent. Mm. I think the genie's out of the bottle and I think the people are way ahead again of the political establishment. Why do you think they want to keep you out so much? Because we are, um, because we're not part of the established order of how things are done and, you know, what's what. And, and because when we say, actually, we want public housing, we mean that. Mm. When we say we need a properly controlled um, rental market, we mean that. When we say we want public medicine, we mean that. When we say we want Irish unity, mm. we mean that too. So um, I think it is not because they think that we're not fit for government, which is what you hear sometimes. I think it's because they know that we're more than fit for government and we're ready now. And without sounding big-headed, uh, I think we've got a good team. Mm. Um, I think you've fresh legs, people who are see things differently, would think about things differently. And we're not, the main reason they want to keep us out to, is because we're not Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael. I mean, that's <laughs> just to summarise, yeah. to crystallise the point. Um, this is kind of a callback question, I guess, but the media does have this obsession with you being enigmatic. Um, why do you <laughs> think that is? And how do you feel about that? I feel spectacularly unenigmatic. <laughs> I'm not, you know, I'm not enigmatic at all. I'm very, very ordinary. So why, why is this? I don't know. I can't answer that for you, no, but I can only say to you, there's nothing I'm not, you know, I haven't scaled Kilimanjaro. You know, I can't play the cello. I don't speak 10 language. I'm not some kind of international. I'm actually a very ordinary person. That's, does that make you enigmatic in political life? I'm a woman. That makes you, you know, kind of, that, that alone makes you stand out a bit. I'm a Sinn Féin woman. I'm a Sinn Féin middle class woman. Is it that, that, that those those pieces of the jigsaw don't click neatly for some? I don't know. I, honest to God, I can't answer it. Except um, when my mother uh, saw me referred to as enigma, she laughed so hard that she literally cried. She thought it was priceless. Do you think it's interesting that there seems to be a greater interrogation of your um, political ideologies or philosophies? Like when things, when people are trying to like get under your skin or whatever, there's like, how could this person from South Dublin be, you know, a shinner, basically? Um, yet there doesn't seem to be the same interrogation of other po polit politicians' ideologies. Like nobody says... And why did Leo Varadkar join Fine Gael? You know, we must find, <laughs> we must come with me, Indy. We're going to find the... It's the know. deep recesses yeah. of his brain, yeah. Actually, in a way, um, I used to interpret that piece as kind of an insult to Sinn Féin 
Um, but actually, as I reflect on it, the insult actually is to middle class people. Because what's, what's the story here that because you are middle class, you can't think? There's just a little buzz there on your mic. I wonder if it, yeah, yeah. That, that works. Whatever, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, just because you're middle class, you can't think. You can't step outside the framework of your own life. You don't have an aspiration beyond yourself. Is that, you know, that's, um, that's to really shortchange middle class people or people who are, you know, are just lucky enough because it is still a matter of sadly privilege and look to be very well educated. You know, is that, does that mean, do you forego your capacity to, to imagine something beyond the here and now just because you fall into that demographic category? I mean, I think that's really tra- tragic if people, I, you know, if, if everyone is to conform to expectations, so if I was to conform to the expectation of how I sound and my demographic box, yes, I wouldn't be in Sinn Féin. You know, certainly 10 years ago, but that's not how human beings operate. And that's not how progress is driven. Progress is driven by people who step outside what's expected of them and push things forward. I think maybe there's like a weird, it could be to do with a weird mirror in the media because the media is by and large a middle class, although there are loads of working class journalists. And there seems to be a greater subconscious feeling of denial or rejection when as you describe people who are you know personified as middle class don't don't toe the same lines there's not there's no interrogation of people who are middle class and center right and right wing exactly i think that and i hope i'm right i really hope i'm right on this i sense that in the younger cohort our younger citizens are less trapped by that. Mm. That's my sense. I mean, I look at, say, my own kids. My daughter now would be 17 in the summertime. And her attitude and her, the breadth of her friendships and her her perspective on things is, is just... It's filled with diversity and it's filled with a consciousness of being conscious of these things in a way that certainly when I was 16 or 17, I I, I didn't... I didn't have I, I think I think we've made some progress on that. Um, and lots of people who are public commentators and journalists are hugely effective in countering that and, and calling that out. But it's, it's still a factor there. We expect people to conform or the system expects you to conform. You are generally very good in debates. Um, yet sometimes during the general election, there you seemed a little nervous or maybe un- underprepared. Would you agree with that? And if you do, why so? And if you don't, why so? Yeah, I mean, um, I had never done those types of leaders' debates before. Mm. And there's a lot riding on them. And you're kind of saying, right, well, you know, when they're the huge, big panels of leaders. Yeah. It's very hard to get a coherent debate when there's so many of you. And do you remember Ivan... Yates gave us a right rollicking before any of us had even opened our mouths. So that's one. <laughs> that was, was a bananas. That was whoa. oh my god. So so you've that, but then you have the other one where there was just the three of us. It was only supposed to be two. I I discovered like that morning or something that yeah, was going to go. be in yeah. in the debate. So I think experience. It's like anything. I'm an experienced political operator, but. I'm learning every day, as they mm. say. And then there are some questions to which there just aren't pat answers. So I was asked a question about um, Paul Quinn, about all of that. There isn't a slick answer to that. 
there just isn't so um so it's a matter of preparation and and content and and learning and doing your best i think above all else in any of those debates you have to kind of be yourself as well and you have to you're not always going to have the pat you know killer line or you know the thing that answers a question comprehensively to everyone's satisfaction um and maybe the mic drop moments are what's wrong with media debates when people are looking for the the one-liners yeah yeah for well, I do, I suppose, and sometimes those are those are um those come to fruition and then mm. it depends if you're doing a, a debate in front of a live audience because you have the audience Energy. does the heavy lifting in terms of reaction good or bad um, and it's different if you're in a studio but there's it's quite an experience like I'm really glad that I now have that under my belt because I'd be lying if I said to you anything other than it's quite nerve-wracking mm. and I'm sure it's probably no different for everybody else who participated in mm. Mm. Um, on that um, why couldn't you get your answer on the special criminal court straight when there's a whole breadth of thinking and justification for your point of view yep. from a human rights perspective? Why yep. couldn't you just say, well, you know, the ICCL or Mary Robinson critiqued it or... or... Well, for, for you're right, there is that breadth of concern and criticism, not that you would think it when you listen to the public discourse on on this on this matter non-jury courts are problematic they do exist in the system family courts drug courts so they're not totally beyond the pale but for serious criminal charges carrying very high tariffs very high sentences potentially they're they're problematic and we have landed on a position where we believe that the whole thing needs to be reviewed i mean it'll be up for renewal now next month um, the last time there was any real substantive review of the provisions is 20 years ago. So the time is right now. So you asked me the question, why not just say, no, forget about it. Um, and, and I would answer that by saying that we accept and I accept that given what is called gangland crime, what it has done, particularly to working class communities across this city, across this state, I accept that we need emergency provisions. I, I accept to keep communities and people safe. We need real teeth and we need mechanisms to, to ensure that that happens. So to that end, it's not simply a case of saying uh, we don't want special provisions or there cannot be special provisions, but they have to be the right ones. They have to be adequately, there has to be adequate oversight and policing of them. And then they critically, they have to be matched by resources on the ground. And by that, yes, I mean guard the numbers. Yes, I mean guard the resources. But I also mean resource and community responses. So it's a whole it's a whole piece. And our thinking on it has been evolving as as is right, I, I believe. Um but you, over you, the recent you, years. Like, it, there's two bits to this. Like one bit is like how how do you actually finally put to bed this question that dogged you and Sinn Fein during the general election, which I mean, if if I were answering that question from your perspective, I would say everybody knows that it's problematic and look at all of this human, you know, civil liberties and human rights aspect. People would have gone, oh, okay. But the problem is with regards to the kind of the gangland aspect, you know, everybody knows that when you talk about special criminal court, they're not going to be thinking about gangland criminals. Yeah, but you see... But you see, let's be careful who we're defining as everybody. But I mean, you know, the, the 
I, I, I know, I know. So I'm where just... I live, that that's not what people hear. Yeah. See where, see, see in 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 the neighborhood that I live in, and the neighborhood next door to me, when they hear that, that's they're they're not thinking about the nineteen seventies and who went through Green Street and and yeah. all that conveyor belt, which at its height was, I mean, anyway, that's another conversation, but. Uh, other people you see that's not what they hear mm. they hear and they say well hold on a minute you know um my neighborhood has been wrecked i'm afraid of my young fella going to the shops i'm afraid of the young fellas coming into the flats you know grandparents saying to the kids don't pull your hood up because you get mis- they're terrified that someone is going to get mistaken for somebody and what I am trying to do and the politics of what we're trying to do is to get it right absolutely from a civil liberties and a human rights perspective. But we also have to recognise that circumstance, it's not the 1970s now, it, we're in the year 2020. Um, and what is happening out on our streets has to be tackled. And I, I, I accept that we are going to need emergency provisions to that. So what do they look like? I'd also say on the special criminal court, I think um, in the course of election debates, it's laid almost as a trap. Yeah. Just like, ha you know, you're soft on crime or you're ambivalent about law and order and safety. I mean, nothing could be further from the truth because as it happens, like I represent the North Inner City. I mean, I, I have I have like zero tolerance for what's called gangland because I, I represent the people who live with this reality day and, and who have kids who have heard and seeing things that children shouldn't see or hear, and their teachers will tell you they're traumatised. I mean, you've a traumatised community. So, you know, th- there has to be a very firm hand to keep to keep safety, uh, and it's a question of how you do it. Um, but I take your point, you're absolutely right to say that the civil liberties organisations have a, a firm position on these matters. So we need to review it. In fact, I hope next month when it comes up, the motion will come before the House and I hope that we will uh, get agreement to an amendment for a review of that nature. So take the party political sniping or, you know, the inferences out of it and just do high court, get get somebody objective to actually make that assessment and do that review. And then I think we all need to be guided by that. Okay. How did Sinn Féin's performance in the presidential election impact the party's confidence? Yeah, we got a we got a, a knockback on it. Um, I think it was a classic case of not misreading the politics generally, um, but misreading the public mood in terms of like change for that office. Now, Michael D obviously had is immensely popular, correctly mm-hmm. so, had done a great job. Um, our view was it is Uktaran Naharan. It's, I mean, the highest office in the land and there ought to be an electoral contest. I actually still believe that that's the right thing. You see, I don't think we did the wrong thing, thing. in principle, but for party political purposes, clearly the great Irish public took a very different view <laughs> and we're quite happy with uh, uh, Michael D. And then maybe the most unfortunate thing about the campaign itself is that it gave rise to laws of unintended consequences, debates that sprung up, some of which were very, very ugly, um, that, that that actually played out in, the, in that campaign. But yeah, it, uh, it, it was a bit of a shaker. Um, we took a bit of a knock on it. And when, when you have a bad day out electorally, 
um, of course it shakes, mm. you, you know, you're watching the morale and the party and you're trying to build things back up again. And it's 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 difficult, but that, that's elections. So many people who aren't, you know, very well known, let's say, um, got elected in the general election on the back of the powerful brand of Sinn Féin. How much of a job is it as for you as the leader to train a lot of those people up with the office that they now hold for there not to be gaffes or mm-hmm. screw ups and to um, condition people into the, to the professional side of national politics? It's a huge step up. And I mean, even if you say if you're a person who has uh, served on a local authority, on a council for a number of years and you have experience, you've accrued experience, it's still a huge step up. I mean, this is, as they say, senior hurling or camogie. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's a huge challenge. I mean, I remember walking in, into this place the first day and I had I had experience at a European level, but not at a council level. And I remember, you know, learning. I remember that feeling coming in and trying to absorb how things are done and even the atmosphere of the place and so on. And then how you carry yourself in terms of your constituency work, in terms of what you say publicly, in terms of what you do not say publicly. And all of these things are learned. I mean, nobody comes through, well, very few come through the gate on day one, the finished the finished product. So yes, um, I think our new uh, TDs who have been elected are very conscious themselves that they have a huge amount to learn. It's not, at this time, their frustration, I imagine, is that they can't come in and learn in the way that all of us learned how to, the committees, how to... And of course, the, the piece around how you interact on social media. It's one thing when you're a private, anonymous citizen thinking out loud about any subject under the sun. It's an entirely different thing when you have the privilege of being elected in here. But it takes you time. In fairness, it takes time for people to adjust to to that. So, yeah, we're going to have to mentor people, develop them. Um, What they have in common is that they're all they're all very different personalities and backgrounds, but they all have like strong, strong qualities in terms of like grassroots activism that's actually the key thing if you're to say god these are all very very different yes they are but that's the the common thread that pulls them together move your little mic there again oh that's perfect yeah i don't know why it's buzzing a little bit for me okay i think it's when you oh that's good yeah is that better (laughs) yeah that's better is that okay yeah that's fine i'll hold it anyway (laughs) (laughs) um on that why do you think a lot of the media missed your ground game uh, I don't know. Um, all I know is that we went out to, I mean, just to meet and talk to and interact with as many people as mm. we physically, humanly possibly could. And to keep it real with people and have conversations that don't go over people's heads. Do you know? Um, mm. You'll have heard a lot of kind of talk about, you know, social contracts and a new social contract and all that high level stuff which is true um but actually i think politics has to be fully democratic in that it actually speaks to people where people are at not where we think they are but where people are actually at so we didn't do anything massively groundbreakingly novel or new i mean i 
went around. We had this car, it's like a Jeep. I got the guts rattled out of me in this thing with my face plastered all over it. And it was up so high. I'm not hugely tall, as you know. So I had to like, like jump out of the bloody thing every place we stopped. So it was just old fashioned, you know, got out, spoke to people. And it wasn't just around me. It was all of the team, mm. all of the lads were out and... It just it just worked. Every election's different. You could do that in the next election and it mightn't work in that way, you know? Yeah. What do you think of Boris Johnson? He's a Tory. And that's all I have to say. Um, I was sorry that he got sick that time, you know, and he's he has a new child and I wish him well and all of that. Um, he's the British Prime Minister. He's a Tory Prime Minister. Um, and that, you know, makes things difficult more difficult than um, if 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 Britain had a Labour uh, Prime Minister. That that's traditionally our experience. But he is the British Prime Minister. We have to work with him, deal with him respectfully but firmly. Um, so you have to go and sort of set out your case and persist and persist with issues um, pertaining to the North, but but also increasingly to Ireland generally. I I thought the position he took on the coronavirus was absolutely reckless. And I wrote to him and told him that. What did you say? That you were reckless. Um, <laughs> and that, I mean, I don't want, nobody wants to see pain and suffering in our neighbouring, on our neighbouring island. Um, but the fact is, because of the current constitutional arrangement, decisions that he makes in number 10 have a direct effect on all of us in this island, not just people living in the north, not just people living in the border counties. The whole island is affected. So, um, so I said that, I mean, I would be quite, you know, it was the same with Theresa May. Um, just, I find the only way that you can, you know, progress things is to be quite honest and to the point when you're, when you're dealing with whoever it is in number 10. Did you get a response? Not yet. No. Well, I did, but it was kind of a pro forma thing. So I'm looking to meet with him again. Um, We'd have regular enough contact with the Secretary of State and obviously with the British system. Um, and it's it's an on it's an ongoing piece of work and some people are tremendously effective within that system and extremely helpful, it has to be said, and others aren't. But Tory governments, as a rule of thumb, are not good news for Ireland or Irish interests. I mean, we've all the history to demonstrate that. If you had to pick ministers from other parties, who would you put in finance, housing and health? <laughs> That's a great one, That's a mean question. Come on. It's a mean question. I have to say Pierce, Owen and Louise. No, you can't. Or... I'm not allowed to do that. Okay, so I have to put other people in, in position. Um, well, in health, I'd put in Roshan Shortall. So I have no hesitation in that. Um, she's got a a commitment and a platform in terms of public health that's I strongly, strongly support. So that one is straightforward enough. Housing. Housing, housing. Maybe um, the Labour Party were bad on housing, so I'm sorry, lads, I have to hop, skip and jump over that. Do you know what? Um, somebody from the Greens mightn't be bad in housing. Maybe Catherine Martin. Catherine Martin might be good in, in that. Somebody, public housing, mm. public land, all of that piece. And then finance. Finance. 
do I have to go for a man because I've chosen two women? Absolutely well, my not. critics <laughs> ceiling. So this woman's an obsessed feminist fanatic. Um, into finance. You need somebody sensible, connected, down to earth. Um, maybe um, from the independent benches. Somebody from the independent benches. Maybe somebody like... Um, maybe Catherine. Maybe Catherine Connolly. Because she'd bring a big social justice vibe. She's also very smart. She can add, subtract, you know, read complex things and understand them. <laughs> what new departments would you like to see created? We'd like to see um, a ministry or a junior ministry to deal with planning for constitutional change. But however, whatever that's called, you know, um, I think that's important. Uh, in terms of, of new departments, I mean, in the in the moment of now, one of our anxieties is that we don't lose some of the departments that we currently have. So there's a whole conversation emerged around the Department for, of, for Children uh, and Youth. I, I think it would be a really bad day's work to lose that particular department. I think it's also important that... Um, Arts, wherever it features, it's with heritage and the Gaeltacht. There's some arguments about reconfiguring that, but I think it's important that the arts are in play. But if if you said to me, if you okay, you're going to make a new department, you can keep what you have, and you're going to make a new department. I would say that uh, the area of disability and carers is one that merits um, a senior department because consistently we have failed in a comprehensive all-of-government way to deal with citizens with disabilities from the very, very youngest to, to the oldest. Everything from dementia to autism to, to intellectual disabilities. And I was really conscious, and it was said to me, and it was right that it was said to me um, in the last election that actually the whole area of disability rights didn't get the focus that it deserved. Like, hands up, mm. that's actually the truth. And that happens consistently. And even now, in the current crisis, um, disability activists, citizens, everyone is now saying, so we're being forgotten again. We're, we're mentioned, but it, it's mentioned almost as an afterthought. We need to stop that. So, Do you think there should be a minister for Dublin? Getting a buzz again there if you okay. grasp. Okay. Is that better? <laughs> or the bottom might Okay. Pick. Is that better? No. The wire must be loose. The wire. Is that better? I'm going to give you my mic. Okay. But are we, we're not going to... Oh, I hope I don't contaminate I can, you. I can hear okay. the buzz then. Yeah, there you go. Okay. Um, I don't know about a minister. There, there's a strong argument for a mayor, a Dublin mayor. I think that might be the issue rather than a minister. We need to be careful not to exacerbate what is already an urban-rural divide. No, and it's not even that. It's a Dublin, rest of Ireland divide. You know, this sense that the dubs get everything, even Sam Maguire, five times in a row, <laughs> soon to be six. So we, we need to be just careful, I think, as a society, not to do things that exacerbate that sense and also that reality of Dublin being 
hyper overdeveloped and the rest of the country being left behind. So I wouldn't favour a minister for Dublin. I do see the argument for a Dublin mayor. What about a nightmare? A nightmare? <laughs> A mayor of the night. A mayor for clubs. of the night. I don't and know. I think you want need, that job. I would love it. Uh, we need a nighttime economy. Yeah. And no, a focus certainly and do. to dance. Yeah. The house bang. Um, and all of the arguments have been really well put in terms of from everything from public order and safety to public transport provision mm. to tourism to, and never mind people coming on to, into the city or into, onto the island, just all people of us who live here. here you yeah. know. Um, so... I support all of that. I mean, I see the good sense and logic of that. I would say the question that now arises where the sector has been, you know, put to sleep for now, how do you reawaken that? And I think there's an opportunity now to do and think and examine things that six months ago or a year ago, when you wrote about them or articulated them, people saying, that's mad, that's never going to happen. That's not how we do things. Mm. All of a sudden, we're now forced to do, to reimagine just about everything. So I think there could actually be an opportunity for that nightmare. (laughs) What, um, what's your favorite band of all time? Hmm. Tin Lizzy, The Clash. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm very eclectic in the music that I like. Is this um, one of those lies? <laughs> no, it's not a lie. No, it's actually true. It's not the Beatles. Sorry, Beatles fans. Ever, my husband loves the Beatles. They drive me round the twist. A little of it goes a long way. Same. Yeah. Um, so no, um, but I'm not. Uh, I'm, I'm quite eclectic. Like I listen to pretty much everything. Even my kids' music now. Although I have desisted doing what my mother used to do and saying, what's that noise? I do at least do them the courtesy of recognising it as music. When you're searching on Netflix, what category would you gravitate towards? Um, Made in Manhattan. (laughs) I've seen it, but not by choice. Um, I love anything. I love uh, suspense and mystery. I love a good courtroom drama. They don't make A few good men. Yeah, best great. film ever. Fabulous. So, but I, again, I kind of watch everything. I, we've watched Netflix now in lockdown. Um, my kids were watching that thing about Joey Exotic. Oh, Tiger King. Sweet, yeah. divine. So I drew the line at that. Some unfortunate <laughs> had their arm bitten off or something. I said, oh my God. So, uh, yeah. Um, so do you feel like you can really be yourself in the public eye? Because off camera, there is this a sense of fun I suppose that people don't see and actually the day of the count I think it was I was out in RTE doing a radio bit and people were coming in and out of the studio and Bertie Hearn came in and it struck me I this is just an observation mm. it's not a judgment or anything like that it struck me that okay there's the you know the commonality of the constituency and all that kind of thing but there are kind of correlations between yourself and Bertie in a way in that on the ground, you're very, like people gravitate towards you. And there's a, like a personability and stuff that sometimes people don't really get. I know that you can't be like cracking jokes and having the laws in the chamber, shall mm. we say. But do you feel like you can be yourself in the public eye because there is so much scrutiny on Sinn Féin and you have to answer questions that other parties don't? 
So the answer to that question is yes and no all at the same time. Um, yes, in a, as much as you don't have to. like So in the public eye is, yes, it's in the television studios and on the radio, but it's also when you're out interacting with people. That's very public. That's you're with the public then. Um, so you, you, you don't have to be stiff and starchy and you can relax more into it. Um, and sometimes depending on the nature of the conversation or the event you can you know you can give more of yourself but obviously if you're being if there is kind of a if if you're being very aggressively interrogated on something that happened 30 years ago um consciously or unconsciously a level of your defenses come up because you have to handle that and you have to respectfully acknowledge the questions and accept that they're being asked of you and then you have to answer to them to the very best of your ability. So, I mean, there's a balance in it. There's probably an art in that. I, I don't know, are there public figures who are absolutely 100, maybe the likes of a Bill Clinton or, you know, these kind of, you know, Barack Obama or, you know, who are who are like that charismatic presence on and off camera and all of that. I don't know. I think there's multiple selves, but there are certain times where you have to tough up and you have to you have to defend your stance and you have to defend your integrity. You have to defend your your sense of yourself. And I absolutely reserve the right to do that. I don't mind anyone asking me anything, by the way, or challenging me in any way. But I do reserve the right to answer back Mm. um, and to defend my position. So you're right. You can't be having the lols or just relax entirely when that's. Because it's a bit comic. I mean, the political system here is adversarial, and the lots of the media interactions are adversarial as well. Do you know what I mean? That's yeah. kind of the vibe that we have going on in terms of the political discourse. I note that you glossed over my Bertie reference there. I, was <laughs> <laughs> I don't have an anorak. I do not wear an anorak. But I, you know the way the Taoiseach is a real um, student of elections. Yeah. Are you a student of party leaders? Um, like Bertie Ahern was the arguably the most powerful um, politician to ever run in your constituency. Oh, absolutely, unquestionably, absolutely unquestionably, they were highly organised, highly effective. God knows, I I know I I suffered at the, at the hands of it, you know. So they were really really good. I mean, that was a really impressive, possibly the best political machine ever in any Irish constituency, I would say. I mean, it was incredible, um, incredibly efficient. Am I a student of, of, of leaders? No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go that far, but, but I'm, you know, I don't, I don't have to be told something twice generally, and I'm, I'm observant, and I, I would like to think that I would always give credit to a person irrespective of their politics or even irrespective of their, their, their political track record, to give credit to somebody where they know what they're doing. Mm. And of course you try and learn, but no, I haven't made an analysis of leaders and said, right, <laughs> I need to borrow a bit of this and a, bar, a, a bit of that, no. We're running a little short on time. Andrea is gonna hit you with quick fire ones okay. now. Which historical figure do you most identify with? Oh God, <laughs> that I most admire, Markievicz. Which living person do you most despise? Do I say it? <laughs> Go on. you got to say it. Do I say it? Do I have to say it? You have, have to, to say it. 
I have to say it. You have to say it. I absolutely have to say it. 100%. Katie Hopkins. Um, <laughs> what is your greatest extravagance? Um, Jesus, these are difficult <laughs> questions. <laughs> greatest extravagance. What's my greatest extravagance? I'm not extravagant, am I? I'm not extravagant. I'm frugal. What is your idea? The Burberry habit? scarf says otherwise. Okay. okay. That we was a present. About that. That's, excuse me, it's a coat. <laughs> it's not a scarf. You wore a Burberry you, scarf. Oh, I have a scarf as well, yeah. The debate. Was that on purpose? No, it wasn't on purpose. That, that was a, a gift given to me by my friend Rosaline, who lives in America and who, who is incredibly extravagant. Actually, Rosaline's my extravagance. <laughs> what is your ideal night out? My ideal night out, we see it depends. I have two ideal nights. Quiet night out, yeah. food, crack, lots of wine, crack as in fun, fun, <laughs> lots of uh, wine, great company. Other night out, lots of um, shots, music, late, later the better. If you're out, you're out. Don't come home. Fab. We'll put that in the nightmare. What, okay. what is the, your shot of choice? Um... I suppose I like tequila. What do you... Think? Mind you, I, can I be honest? I mean, yeah. it depends on the hour of the night. Okay? <laughs> kind of, I guess that's less selective as the night moves on. What do you think of the Chucky Arsesh jumpers? Have you seen them? I haven't actually. James Kavanagh has done jumpers that say Chucky Arsesh. Chucky Arsesh. Oh, class. For the night time. Okay, where do you get them? ChuckyArsesh.com. Okay, Chucky, okay, <laughs> Chucky Arsesh. I think it's interesting how that Chucky R thing, Chucky Armano, how yeah. that's been borrowed. I think that's really, really brilliant. And finally, what is your greatest fear around potentially becoming Taoiseach? Mm. Of letting people down. Not that I believe that I would, but you would have to, if you're taking on a role as head of government of that enormity with such potential and such direct consequences for people's lives. I would hate whatever else, agree with me, disagree with me, have a debate, have an analysis, but I would I would consider it a, a huge failure on my part if I let people down. Mary Lou MacDonald, those were your 32 questions. Thank you so much.